Can you hear me? Okay, great. Um, I'm so glad to see you here this morning. Um, welcome to Northbrook Church. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, we have Bibles on our welcome table, and you're welcome to take one home um, as our gift to you. Today, we will be reading from Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Northbrook. So good to be with you today. This feels like a homecoming to me. So many, uh, so many familiar faces, people that I see, that I know and I love. Uh, really grateful for your leaders. Uh, I think that's quite impressive that they would get in this morning at, at 5 and Uber from the airport, probably grab a quick shower, maybe a cup of coffee, and then be here. Uh, deeply grateful. Randy gave me a heads up, though. He said, if we nod off during the sermon, please don't take that personally. I assured him I'm very used to that, so no offense uh, will be taken. Um, if you were to drive on Highway 153 between Sweetwater and Winters, Texas, out in West Texas, you would see a, a giant rock protruding out of the ground on which are inscribed the words, Jesus is the rock. As a matter of fact, I've got a picture of it for you. I've, uh, I've seen this, perhaps you've seen this, this rock before. I've seen it many times because it's on my father-in-law's property. And today as, we, uh, today as we end up, as you've seen from what we've already read this morning, as we wrap up the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to give us one more parable in which he says and claims to be the rock. And the question that we have in front of us today is, will we build our lives around Jesus, who is the rock, or will we build our lives around something or someone else? Let me see if I can ask the question a little bit differently. When it comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the issue that really faces us today is, will we be informed by Jesus or will we be transformed by Jesus? That's the choice that's in front of us today. So thankful to be with you. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll jump into the Bible together. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here, and they're not here by accident. And according to the Lord Jesus, Father, you've called this meeting. You've brought us here, whether it was from DFW after a trip in from Chicago or just we walked down the street. You've brought us here because according to Jesus, Father, you seek those who worship you in spirit and truth. And Father, that's what we want this morning to be. As we, as we study your word, we want to be worshipers. Lord Jesus, thank you that you being eternally God, you humbled yourself, you took upon yourself the form of, of a human being. You walk this earth. You live the only sinless life that's ever been lived. 
You lived a perfect life. And then Lord Jesus is our perfect, blameless, sinless, faultless sacrifice and substitute. You went to the cross, and there you died in our place. Oh, and Lord Jesus, we celebrate this morning because the grave couldn't contain you. You are physically, bodily risen from the dead. You're at the right hand of God the Father. And one day, perhaps very soon, you'll come back and you'll rule and reign forever. Holy Spirit, we pray that as we open up the Bible today, you would open up our hearts. You, you would stir in us deep affection for Jesus, that we would understand what it means to build our lives on the rock that is Jesus and his work and his words. Holy Spirit, you know where everyone in this room is. We come from all different places. Would you minister to each one of us according to the grace of God? In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Turn to me, if you will, to Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29. And I want to do something a little bit different. I want to start with the last two verses first because I think it's important that we establish the way that people respond to Jesus, and then we'll cover his last words in this sermon. So picking up in Matthew 7, verse 28, listen to this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You have a, uh, you have a perfect event, or you have an event in the life of Jesus that you wish you would have been there. I think we all would have picked probably first the resurrection. Wouldn't have been amazing to be firsthand witnesses to the resurrection. There's times when I think about the cross and the crucifixion, I almost think like, I don't know if I could take that. Like that would be powerful. And yet knowing that it was my sin that was causing Jesus such agony, that would be difficult to endure. Maybe you would want to see someone raised from the dead, maybe someone healed. This is the scene I wanted to be in. Maybe because uh, I, 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 I love teaching the Bible, I would have loved to hear Jesus teach. And I hope that my response would have been the same as these people. They were, they were astonished. That word means they were, they were overwhelmed. They were overcome because he taught unlike anyone else they ever heard. He, did, he didn't teach as the scribes, and those were the teachers of the day. He taught as one who had what? Authority. He taught from firsthand experience. Jesus, the Bible teaches us, is the word of God. He is God incarnate. He is the one who ultimately reveals God to us in human form. And when Jesus speaks, he speaks the word of God. When the scribes taught of the day, they taught from secondhand information. Oftentimes, the teaching in Jesus' day in the rabbinic tradition was someone teaching about someone else who was teaching about the Bible. It would be the same as me standing up in front of you today, bringing up a bunch of commentaries and just reading, this is what... Uh, this is what John Calvin said on this text, and here's what John MacArthur thinks, and maybe some other John. John Piper says this, and you'd be like, yeah, okay, that's all good, but what, you know, feels very secondhand. Jesus is overwhelming because he teaches with authority. He is God incarnate. He is the word of God in flesh, and when Jesus speaks, he speaks with all the authority of God himself, as we look at these last few words in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, let me ask you a real basic question. Are you overwhelmed by Jesus this morning? Does he hold authority in your life? How do you respond to his authority? Because the way you answer that question is really going to be the way that you understand the parable that he's going to teach as he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount. Are you in awe of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in human skin? Do you see that in his words are life, and those Words are weighty. They hold in them eternal, final consequence. Now, let's look at the parable he ends with. 
if you will, back up a few verses with me to verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall with it. Jesus is speaking in binary terms again. We've seen this. I think Jake preached about this last week, that you have these series of twos. Don't you love that when Jesus speaks, there aren't multiple choices? This isn't a multiple choice test with A, B, C, D, and E. There aren't several different options. There's just two. There's these binary. There are, there are two gates. You, have one, you pick one to enter in, but there's only two choices. There's two paths. Pick which one you're going to walk down, but there's only two paths. There's two types of trees of whom we're going to listen to, either good trees that produce good fruit or bad trees that produce bad fruit. And here, as we come to the end of this sermon, there's, there's, there's two options represented by two different men. I want you to understand that today, whether you're not a Christian or you are a Christian, there's really only two choices. We're either going to heed and listen to the words of Jesus and act upon them, or we may hear them and we may not, but those are the only two choices. Are we going to respond in belief and faith, or are we going to disregard what it is that Jesus has to say and what he does? Now, let's look at what these two men have in common first, because it's important. First and foremost, as Jesus is telling this parable, both of these men hear the word of God. They hear the words of Jesus. So from the outside looking in, both of these appear to be followers of Jesus. They both are listening to the words of Jesus. They have that in common. Both of them are building houses. They're constructing houses. They go out and they build a house. They raise it from the ground up. And in many ways, this is symbolic of living your life. One of the ways we can think of living our lives in its entirety is we're perpetually building a house. We're building a house, we're building our life, and our life in some ways is synonymous with building a house. The third thing they have in common is they endure a storm, a huge storm, with high winds and heavy rains and floods. We can't imagine that here in DFW, can we? We all just survived one this past week, I believe. I hope we all survived this. Well, if you didn't, you wouldn't be here. That's what they have in common. What is it they have in contrast? What separates out these two men that represent two responses to the words of Jesus? Here's what they have that differentiates them. One not only hears the words of Jesus, he acts upon them. He obeys. He believes. He trusts. He's transformed by Jesus. The other one merely hears the words of Jesus but does nothing after hearing them. He doesn't act upon them. He doesn't believe. He doesn't trust. He, he doesn't obey. He's merely informed by Jesus. Here's the second thing that differentiates these. One man is like a wise man who built his home on the rock. Now, I know some of you in this room were just in the Middle East recently, and, and, and if you really understood the topography of Israel, when Jesus is giving this parable, you had these wadis, you had these wide expanses and where you could choose to build your house on these large rock outcrops. So one man founds his house on the rock, tethers his house to the rock on firm, solid ground. The other man foolishly goes and he builds 
on the sand. One is wise and builds on the rock. One is different because he's unwise or foolish and he builds on the sand. Here's the other thing that differentiates them. The storm comes from both of them. They both endure the same storm. They both experience the same storm. One man's home stands, his life stands, because it's tethered to the rock, which is Jesus. The other is washed away. The fall of the house happens, and according to the text, it isn't just any kind of fall. It's a severe fall. Great was the fall of it, meaning it was complete. It was entire. It was wiped out. There was no reconstruction. There was no rebuilding. It was it. It was done. Do you feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here? There are times in Scripture where we see examples of storms being just the trials and tribulations of of life. We all experience those things. Things happen in this life that are hard and are difficult, that we have to endure. This is not what's in mind here. This is the final storm. This is the mother of all storms. This is the great storm. This is none other than the wrath of God poured out upon a rebellious humanity And it is devastating. And one of these two men build his house upon the rock, build his life on the words and works of Jesus in a way that he was preserved when the wrath of God came. The other was completely wiped out. Church, something that concerns me is we oftentimes want to make God and especially the Lord Jesus Christ, acceptable to the culture around us. And one thing we just can't get away from in these words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus takes the wrath of God very seriously. He has every chance to say, hey, you think that the wrath of God is coming? Because that's what the people believe. Now, that's not really the way it's going to be because he's done that and elsewhere. He's challenged their beliefs, but he says, oh, it's going to be stronger than you can even imagine. Jesus speaks commonly and regularly and warningly and with great empathy towards people who are going to ultimately suffer the wrath of God. It's going to be a terrible thing. And so the weight that's being placed on these two individuals in this parable is one of them hears the word of God and obeys. The other one just hears it and walks away. One is ultimately transformed by Jesus, attached to the rock, which is Jesus Christ. The other, not so much. This is enormously weighty. We can't overstate how significant this is. Eternal destinies hang in the way in which we respond to the words of Jesus. How should we respond? What does this look like? I had uh, planted a church near the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque a long time ago, almost, almost 23 years ago. And like most university communities, we had the most eclectic type of people. It was really an exciting and dynamic place to do ministry, never a dull moment. I'm sure that's true as well here in this part of, uh, probably true anywhere anymore. But uh, one guy I got to know was really eccentric. His name was Patrick. I I just had great affection for him. He uh, He was struggling with mental illness. Patrick was stricken with schizophrenia. And, and yet he had a dynamic relationship with Jesus and he wanted to follow Jesus and his life was hard and challenging and so much of what he had to do was discern between what was uh, mental illness and what was reality. And so we would meet weekly, we would open up the Bible, we'd study, we'd pray together. Patrick loved vintage clothes. It just fit his 
eccentric personality to the core. He would go from thrift shop to thrift shop, take five bucks, come in with a new wardrobe based on five bucks every week. You know, every week it's like, hey, look what I got for five bucks. Yeah, sometimes you get what you pay for, but I understand. And uh, one day Patrick came in, he was so excited. He had a gift for me. He said, I I found something in the thrift shop. I can't wait for you to open it. And so I opened up this bag and I took out this really cool vintage leather belt like the 1960s, like hippies probably wore this belt. Probably still smelled like hippie if I smelled it closely. And it had on it, engraved in leather, in yellow letters, Jesus saves with a cross. And I started to wear that belt, and I liked wearing it around because it led to conversations. But I found out that although the, the phrase Jesus saves is really common, nobody really knew what it meant. If I were to ask you this morning, don't speak out loud, just keep this to yourself. When we say Jesus saves, because Northbrook believes that, every church that's Bible-centered believes Jesus saves, the question that that raises is saves from what? How would we answer that? Does he merely save us from a meaningless life? Does he save us from our our fears and anxieties and discouragements? Does he save us from death? Does he save us from hardship? What is it that Jesus saves us from? Do you understand what it is that Jesus saves us from? Jesus saves us from God. Jesus saves us from the very wrath of God. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone that you and I are spared the wrath that we so rightfully deserve. And Jesus is saying, hey, be careful with what I just told you. I've given you a lot of words. But if you want to be like the wise man who builds his home, builds his life on the rock, the rock which is Jesus himself, then you're going to be spared in the day of judgment. But if you're merely going to be a hearer, not a doer of the word, although you may externally appear to be a follower of Jesus, the reality of it is you're going to be swept up with the judgment with everyone else who denies and disbelieves in Jesus. How we respond, what does it look like? What does it practically look like to build our lives as if they were houses on the rock of Jesus Christ? How do we do that? Let's look at two options here. First, we could be like the foolish man and we could build our lives on sand. And I think there are probably two types of sand. There may be 10, there may be 20, there may just be one, but I think there's two ways in which we can hear the word of Jesus and build our lives on sand in such a way that someday when the judgment comes, we're gonna be swept away with everybody else who doesn't believe in Jesus. The first sand I'm gonna define is legalism. Legalism isn't just adding rules to the Bible, although that's usually what you and I think of legalism. Legalism is thinking that by your own efforts, by your own good deeds, that you can somehow, some way measure up to a status where God finally declares, you know what, that's good enough, you're in, you're safe. If we've seen anything in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps ratcheting up the requirements of God, doesn't he? He says things like, you know, you've heard you shouldn't murder, and we all think, okay, we're good. And he says, but if you're angry with your brother, you're, you're a killer. Oh, no. Or he says things like, you, you've heard that you should not commit adultery, and we think, okay, we're, we're, we're good with that. And he says, no, no, if you have lust in your heart, you're an adulterer. Jesus has elevated the holiness and the requirements of God. Then he says, in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He establishes this standard of perfect keeping of the law. 
and we're all lost. So the one who hears the words of Jesus and thinks something like this, okay, I'm going to try to do the things that Jesus says, and I'm going to try to avoid the things that Jesus says to avoid, and if I do that consistently enough, somehow, some way, I will make myself righteous. You're building on sand. And when the judgment comes, you're going to be terribly disappointed and terribly shocked. You're not going to make it. I met a man when I was leading this same church in Albuquerque named Brian. Brian stumbled in one, one evening after a service, and he was hungry. He was starving to death. He had been in prison. He joined the Aryan nation there by his own admission to survive, and he was a heroin addict, and he had nothing, went to his apartment. He had absolutely nothing in his refrigerator, and so we provided him some food, and, and Brian began to join up and be a part of the church. Didn't join the church, but began to participate in the life of the church. And I would sit down with Brian and I'd explain to him, here's the good news. Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus lived a life, Brian, you couldn't live. He died the death you deserve to die. He's risen from the dead. If you feel trust in him, he'll give you his righteousness. He'll take away from you your sin. And Brian said, no, nah, that's not right. I said, okay, tell me what's right then, Bible scholar. I wasn't that rude. I said, you tell me. You, you know, you've studied the Bible for 15 minutes. You tell me what it is. And he said, here's what it is, Dave. He said, here's three things about a relationship with God. You've got to want it. You got to work hard to get it. You got to work harder to keep it. Brian, you're building your house on sand. I don't know that Brian's still alive today. I've lost contact with Brian. He had cystic fibrosis. Chances are he's not alive. If Brian didn't change his view of who Jesus was and what Jesus did, he's going to experience the wrath of God. So, so close, but so far away. There's another type of sand that we can build our lives on that's equally as dangerous as legalism. And I'm simply going to call that lawlessness. Lawlessness simply says something like this. Somewhere in my past, I had a religious experience. I prayed a prayer, rose my hand at a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a crusade, was baptized, joined a church. There was some moment in the past that I had this spiritual experience. But as I live my life today, if I were candid with you, I view obedience to Jesus as merely optional. There's this false idea of grace that it really doesn't matter what I do here and now as it pertains to obeying Jesus because it's okay, I'm covered, I'm good. I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I went under the water. I'm good. I'm all right. In this same church, there was a man named Clark. And Clark had it all together, at least from external perspectives. He was very wealthy, very successful in what he did, very generous to the church. It was a, it was a small church. We, we maybe had a budget of $250,000 a year. Um, we did all that we could with it. So it meant every week, uh, it, old days. I never wanted to know who gave what. I still don't. But uh, the, 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 the counting team would, would simply leave on my desk for a, a teared-off page from a yellow notepad with the numbers on it. Like, Pastor Dave, we took in, you know, $2,500 this week. So it would be, Pastor Dave, this week, God's people gave 5,000, 5,000, 6,000 every, every other month. This week we took in $65,000. Clark was that type of donor. He would drop $60,000, $50,000 in the offering plate quarterly. Just, just felt like he needed to. His family looked perfect. Uh, they all came to church. The, the, the kids looked great. Wife and husband looked like they had a good relationship. So on the surface level, here was a faithful family in the church. Here was Clark. He was generous. He was always present, never missed 
a service, was involved in a small group, but we began to learn about this double life that Clark was leading. We began to understand that he was a very unethical business person. As a matter of fact, he was about to face criminal charges for illegal and unethical activities. He was a habitual adulterer. He was constantly cheating on his wife. And at the same time, we found out that he was abusing illegal substances. And we pled with him. And we would meet with him over and over again. The people in his small group, the, the, the elders in the church, anybody who knew him would plead with him, please, Clark, turn to Jesus. And he would simply say, I'm good. I'm good. I, I prayed a prayer when I was in college. Somebody knocked on my dorm room door and I, and I gave my life to Jesus in that moment. And really, I'm good. I know that God is going to forgive me for everything. See what Clark is doing? He's building his life on sand. Because Jesus says it's not just the one who hears the word, but it's the one who acts upon it, who obeys it, who by faith believes and obeys. So what does that look like? What does it look like for you and I to do what Jesus is telling us to do here in this passage? What would it look like for you and I and for us together to build our collective lives on the solid rock that is Jesus? Let me read for you one passage. It's one that Jesus just spoke to us in this sermon two chapters earlier, because I think it gives us real insight as to what Jesus means here. This comes from Matthew 5, 17. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Two things Jesus is saying here. I don't want you to miss them. When he says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament as you and I have it today in our Bibles. That's a comprehensive way to say the Old Testament. And there's prophecies and there's stories and there's laws. If you want to count up the laws, scholars will tell you there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I came to fulfill that. Now, fulfill it in two ways. One is he fulfills the revelation of it. Jesus gives us the real meaning of the law. If you really want to understand the Bible, start to finish, it's a story about Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I, gave it to give it, I came to give it its full meaning. I came to reveal fully what it meant. That's the first thing he means when he says he came to fulfill the law. Here's the other thing he does. He absolutely keeps it perfectly. When we say Jesus fulfills the law, he fulfills, as the only human being who ever has done this, the requirements of the law, and he does it on our behalf. Do you believe that today? All 613 commandments Jesus perfectly keeps. Never one minute of his life ever disobedient to God the Father. The only perfectly righteous person that's ever lived Jesus lived the perfect life. You couldn't live. I can't live. We can't live. He just, he did it. And guess what? Here's the good news of the gospel. He did it on our behalf. 
Then he went to the cross as a blameless, spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and he died in our place. And that would have been a noble thing for him to do, but it gets even better than that. Because if he would have just died on the cross and stayed in the grave, he would have been a really good martyr, a really good example for us. But guess what he did? He physically rose from the dead as a validation from God the Father that I accept this sacrifice on behalf of my people given by the Lord Jesus Christ. So something amazing happens. Theologians call this double imputation. Take away with us. Say with me, double Double. imputation. Okay, don't say that at the water cooler tomorrow because everybody will think you're weird, but I want you to understand the concept. Double imputation means for those of us who receive God's grace, and God's grace is a gift of double imputation by faith, this is what happens. Your sin gets credited to Jesus. That's what imputation means. Your sin gets imputed to Jesus, and his perfect standing of keeping the law gets imputed to your account. So that as a gift of grace, God is saying, here's my righteousness, Jesus has said, unless your righteousness exceeds, the scribes and the Pharisees, and those were the holy people today. When Jesus said this to this crowd, I'm sure their hearts sank because the most holy and righteous people they knew were the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus says, unless you do better than them, you're never getting in. And then Jesus perfectly keeps the law. He goes to the cross. There he dies as a perfect substitute on our behalf. He takes our sin upon himself. He's risen from the dead, and God offers us Jesus' righteousness in exchange of our sin is a free gift of grace to be received by repentance and faith. What does this look like? How do you and I build our house on the rock? Let me explain to you maybe one example through my experience that I hope will, will help us in closing. I don't know what your experience was growing up, but, but I grew up in a home that was Uh, not a Christian home. Both of my parents came to Jesus as adults. And uh, I was about fifth, sixth grade when they came to faith, which meant both my mom and dad came to faith. We were going to go to church for the rest of our lives. They began to take us to church. And uh, it was a really good, solid Bible teaching church. This is old school church. And so I started going to church at least for four different events a week. I'd go to Sunday school, Sunday morning. We'd go to Sunday worship, Sunday morning. Sunday night church, which is different than Sunday morning church, Sunday night. And then midweek, there was a youth group meeting, and oftentimes I participated in choir because it was a really good way to meet girls. So there are at least four different occasions I had every week to hear the good news of Jesus, to, to hear his words, and according to Jesus, to act upon them so that I was like the wise man building his house upon the rock. I don't know why. I didn't get it. To me, I was a good person. And Christianity was just a way to make good people better. It was just another way of of improving my life. It was another way of doing things better than I had done. It was helpful in as much as it made a good person better, but I was good. Began to read the Bible. Got a few chapters into it, and one story really, really bugged me, really made me uncomfortable. It was the story of Cain and Abel. You know the story? Where one brother kills the other. And I only had one brother. He was a little brother which by default meant I wanted to kill him. But the thought of actually killing my younger brother was the most evil thing I could ever imagine. There's just no way. How could you do that? It's your brother. You can't kill your brother. And it just reinforced my sense that I'm good. I've not killed. Oh, he's pushed me to the edge, but I've not killed him yet. And I don't intend to. I'm not going to be like Cain 
kill my brother. Then I came to the words of Jesus in this very sermon. You remember this? You taught this several weeks. You know what Jesus said? If any one of you says to your brother, you fool, I have said things far worse than that to my brother. Jesus said, anybody says to your brother, you fool, you're, you're guilty of murder, you're worthy of the fires of hell. My little brother made me mad because he was a little brother, right? Little brothers break things. We have any big brothers in the room? What do little brothers do? They break things. Big brothers make you mad too, little brothers, because they have to be better at everything than you are. And one specific, when I read that text, one specific thing came to mind. I was pretty good at sports. My little brother wasn't as good as the sports that I was good at, but he took up soccer. And I never played soccer. As a matter of fact, I tried it. I wasn't very good. And I was intimidated by the fact that he was going to be good at something I wasn't. And I'll never forget the day as he brought his brand new soccer cleats and he had his shin pads on and he was standing in his soccer and he was showing off to me like, hey, look at me. I've arrived. I'm your little brother. I'm good at something. You know what I told him? I said, soccer is stupid. Soccer's not stupid, right? As one pastor said, soccer is the gateway drug to socialism, but it's not stupid. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. I, I got to give credit. Austin Stone, that's Ross's words. Next morning, he went by his room. You know what was in the trash can? Brand new soccer cleats. And when I read those words of Jesus, I was wrecked. I'm a murderer. I've killed my little brother. At least in the eyes of God, I'm a murderer. How can I fix that? How can I make atonement for it? And I couldn't figure out a way to do it until someone sat down with me one-on-one, -on -one, a youth pastor from out of town sat down and he said, Dave, here's the good news. You're right, you're a murderer. You're way more than that. But you're guilty. But Jesus didn't murder anybody. As a matter of fact, Jesus perfectly kept this law and he went to the cross and he died in your place Will you receive God's gift of grace? Will you give Jesus your sin by faith and receive from him his perfect standing? And I did. I turned away from my sin. I said, Jesus, I don't ever want to kill my brother again. Matter of fact, I want to be a really different person. I want to stop living my own way. I want to stop trying to make things right. I want to stop living apart from you, and I trust you, and I trust that you are who you say you are, that you, you're my righteousness. Change me, Jesus. Fast forward 40 years later. The obedience of Jesus is in my life. I trust him. He's my righteousness. And because he's my righteousness, he helps me obey him today. Not so that he will love me, but because he already does. And God the Father and God the Son have given us all that believe in Jesus a beautiful gift. God the Holy Spirit indwells us and he enables us to obey the words of Jesus now. But I'm not perfect. Forty years later, moved to DFW where my brother lives in Plano. My brother takes up cycling. I used to cycle a little bit. My brother's really good at it. And I start feeling those old feelings again. Those feelings of insecurity. Huh, I'm supposed to be best at everything because I'm the big brother. Then he asked me if he can borrow my bike. I have a really good bike. I didn't pay full price for it. I had a bike stolen out of my garage and I had replacement costs covered from the insurance company. So I paid like $250 deductible and I got a $3,500 bike. And I think to myself, yeah, okay. But it's gonna make him a better bicyclist. Okay, all right. I think I'm learning. 
he rides my bike in a race and he texts me back a picture and he says, uh, the frame on your bike is broken. And those feelings come back up. My insecurities and little brothers who break things. Oh no. Now, chances are the bike probably got broken in the move. We don't know for sure. And I knew then again that I had to respond to Jesus. I know that I needed to, to be converted, to be changed, to be transformed. I didn't merely want to be informed by the words of Jesus. I want to be transformed by the words. The way that you and I are transformed by the words of Jesus is through repentance and faith. That's biblical belief. It's turning from sin and trusting Jesus in our place. So in that moment, I prayed, Holy Spirit, please help me. I, I, I can't believe I'm back here again. I thought this was dead and gone. I thought I'd grown out of this. Help me. What should I do? I need your help right now. So I gave my brother my bike. Here, take it. If you want to repair it, repair it, great. I'll even help you do that. If you want to sell it and get a better bike, do that. My brother yesterday rode a century ride in New Mexico and, and, and climbing 1,500 feet and did amazing using a different bike that he traded this bike in for. I'm so proud of him. I'm so happy. How did that happen? It happened through Jesus. Jesus is the rock in which we build our house. How do you and I respond to the words of Jesus? It's always the same way. It's by biblical faith, biblical belief. Biblical belief always has two elements in it. Turning from sin, it's called repentance. We admit and we acknowledge, can't do this. This isn't who I am. This isn't who I want to be. I'm turning away from being independent of you, God, and I'm turning to Jesus and I'm running to Jesus saying, you're my righteousness. You're my obedience. Help me in this moment to be obedient to you. Church, Northbrook, I've heard the words of Jesus. You've heard the words of Jesus. We've heard the words of Jesus. What are we going to do? Are we going to be informed by Jesus? Or are we going to be transformed by Jesus? Are we going to build our house on the rock? Are we going to build our house on something or someone else? Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters today, those here who have come to the place where they've trusted in Jesus as their only hope of righteousness. I pray that as we walk away today that we would be obedient to Jesus, that we would understand that obedience isn't optional. And the only hope that we have obedience is Christ in us. And Lord Jesus, you said you would send us a helper, the Holy Spirit. And we see in Scripture the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. Holy Spirit, help us walk out in everyday life the obedience of Jesus. Let us live our lives perpetually in a place of repentance and faith, turning from our sin, trusting in Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone in the room today who doesn't yet know Jesus, who's been building on the sands of legalism or the sands of lawlessness, that you would see the grace of God is offered to you today through Jesus. He lived the perfect life you can't live. He died the death you deserve to die. He is risen and victorious. And through him, by faith and repentance, you can give him your sin and receive from his, him his righteousness. Would you do that now? Would you do that now? 
Would you let somebody know later today here in this room that you did that? Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for these words. We want to be men and women, boys and girls, young people who build our lives on the rock that is you, Lord Jesus. Help us. In your good name we pray. Amen.